0: Hello, and welcome to season three of the E3 podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. On this week's episode of the podcast, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Connor Malloy, fellow educator, and one of the masterminds behind this year's Sweet Sixteen Wall System competition, put on by KCBS and Beer. Connor, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what you're up to, and uh, what you've been working on.
1: Hey, Emily. So, for everyone here, I am a uh, professor at George Brown College. We are Canada's largest uh, sc- trade school, so I teach in the School of Apprenticeship and Skilled Trades. We run kind of two programs. We have a two-year program for, for students wanting to be a really sort of uh, capable entry-level on-site carpenter. And then we have a three-year program that teaches more of the project manager side and, and the, um, the sort of uh, business operations side. So that, that's what I do professionally uh, right now. I, I just joined teaching full-time two years ago for working in the trades for about, oh man, 15, 20 years, I guess uh mainly residential and it's been a really fun place to move into teaching is 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 a thrill and teaching skilled trades and teaching you know renovation students how to run a small business is uh you know fraught with challenges but it's a really exciting place to be
0: yeah teaching is a really rewarding experience um I've been teaching for a few years now, off and on, not every semester. Just as a contract employee, I teach you know sustainable design type classes both to construction and uh, architecture and design students. Um, but I feel like I learn so much more from them <laughs> than they learn from me. I, I don't. Yeah, I'm sure it's an equal play, but there's something so great about teaching. It's just it's a really rewarding experience. <laughs>
1: well, sometimes it's like what you initially offer. Like my so my first teaching experience was you know, to be honest, something I probably shouldn't have been teaching, but it gave me the opportunity to, to learn how much I liked helping others get to their goal and figuring out a way to, to teach them the steps that were kind of like blocking them from succeeding because most students, they have the core skills. They have the basic knowledge to be successful. And sometimes it's helping them build that confidence. So the first thing I was, when I was experimenting, like I liked running businesses running projects and, you know, doing teaching for more like a mentorship of my colleagues and of, of my business partners and the things that I was really good at. And when I wanted to kind of see what that felt like on a professional level, I reached out to some prior teachers and, and deans at schools that I'd went to and said, you know, if there's ever opportunity, let me know, I'd love to explore what this is like. And they're like, you know what? Yes, there is. There is a course coming up uh, in interactive design in our school of uh, design management and new media. Cause I have a design background So I took it because why not and try it. So we were working with students in interaction design to create um, really, so they're called immersive environments. So this is a a mixture of technology and built environments to create unique experiences. So these are students that were learning uh, VR and coding and UX, so user experience design, and all digital products. All of my background is in physical manufacturing, physical products. So I had to learn how to, to do video game coding, just to speak their language, to help them with projects. But showing how important physical prototyping was and how incredible it can be to help them get through those roadblocks to build those projects was my hook. And then I started teaching other things. And then I found my way back to construction.
0: That's really cool. Um, the hands-on part, right? is is so cool. And the and the visual part, uh, when I teach some of my classes, um, part of the reason why I teach with another instructor is because I don't always use all the programs that they use, right? So I can teach them the practical knowledge and I can bring in guests from the field and I can draw on the board so they know, and I can mark it up when they submit it via PDF. But if someone asks me how to do a certain thing in this new program that they're learning, I'm like, ah, well, I don't know. So um, that's that's been kind of fun, but it's just a reminder that some of these things are tools, right? That's right. They're tools to get to an end, and that the physical, the physical product is, you know. Even they have, um, they just got a new like laser cutter, laser printer thing. So to watch them do their designs and then have it cut on the printer and come out as something, it's so fun to watch them do those things. Um, so the, the combination of the computer world and the physical world has always been really interesting. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Because if, when, when you look at it, that's why I kind of took that opportunity is when I went to school, I went to a public school that still had a like a full full woodworking shop. So you had like you had a home ec class, which is half of the basement, then it was a full shop. So in grade six, you still learn how to use a table saw and make basic millwork, learn tool safety. My high school still had a welding lab and a woodworking shop. Still very academic, but those are still there. But the majority of students that I'm finding in some of the college programs, including mine, are coming from schools that don't have that physical prototyping background, or even just tool awareness or tool safety to to be able to make physical parts of their projects. So, and that's, what's kind of exciting to work as you were saying, uh, co-teaching. Co-teaching with someone where you can't have everything. It's like, if you're a builder, you've probably got a partner or someone in the business who really loves the business side of it. You love chasing numbers. You love being analytical about profitability and the logistics of sites. Then you probably have someone who really kills it at the buildability and running the physical projects. That's hard to find in one person. And I think with applied courses, whether that's in design, and architecture or building, finding someone who has background in all of the new software um, like Revit or other programs we might teach in CAD on the design side of using those CNC machines, all of the things like Grasshopper, you might have to learn to run those machines you might not have that, even though you have a physical hands-on industrial design background. So I think it's so important to teach these things to students because it's 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 so powerful.
0: That's what I love about your program, too, where you talked about the, the three-year degree that also teaches you about business management, right? Because you look at all of the people, um, both in architecture and in construction, who then go out and start their own businesses, right? And they have a skill, right? So they have the physical skill to build something but they don't have the other skills to run the business part of it. And maybe it's simply just because they hit, they didn't learn that. Right. So a lot of businesses are started because people have a physical skill and yes, they don't have the business stuff. And oh, we've been talking a lot about it um, to other architecture programs. They're like, well, why don't they teach architects how to actually build things or why don't they teach how to, you know, they asked, um, I just did a seminar for Penn State recently with you know, small practice firms, and they were like, what what do you wish you would have done?" And I said, I wish I would have gotten a minor in business. I really wish that I would have done that while I was in college. It didn't occur to me. it wasn't an approach. Back then, I didn't know if I was going to own my own business, but it makes you a better employee if you understand how the business is run. And then I worked for a, um, an architecture firm in washington dc who had exactly what you're talking about they had one partner who was brilliant at design and one partner who was brilliant at business and it worked great because they had different skills and so it's fun in my classes too to learn what different skills people had and would we'll come in and be like oh i hated math and i'm like well have you applied math to something that's interesting because you might actually like math you just might not like math that's Theoretical, so it's fun seeing the different skills that they have, and and reminding people that in the construction industry there are so many different types of jobs that you could have um, based on your skills.
1: That's that's the exciting piece. Like I, I I had a more traditional background. My my father runs a design build business. They're in their 42nd year uh, running that business in in part of southwest Ontario. And I thought everyone's like me. If you go to a design school or an architectural school, you've grown up in the business, you like living around it. And I had the opportunity to learn how to run a project early. I got brought in the office to learn how the numbers worked. And I, I didn't recognize how rare that was that someone could show you how the business worked. And when I came to school and you see what's being taught, I went to school for interior design for my undergrad. That was all about the craft itself. So out of four years And what is that six, seven courses a semester, I had one elective, which was design management in my fourth year. So that's three hours a week for for 10 weeks out of hundreds of hours of classes. And that's the only piece around management. And I'm not sure whether it's because if there's so much to teach in those four years that the management of a business or management of a project, there's so much time left for it. I think that's what's so unique about our, our program is that we do have this focus on the first two years which is you know basic on-site competency so it's tool safety and it's you know framing practices and practices with applied building science like airtightness and continuous insulation and working with trades but then there's the management side in that third year program so how do you without working for someone who a has good numbers or b is a good teacher in business or will take you off a of site how do you be less productive to teach you those things? That's probably, probably really rare. How do we run them through scenarios to show them how cash flow works on a job site? How do we show them how to write a simple business plan? Because we know a third of our graduates are going to start a business at some point, whether they're a good fit for that business or not. How do you teach them how to do that? How do you teach the basics of that marketing aspect of how you think about your client, right? And focus your business as a solution for that client. So being specific about who your client is and what problem you are solving is an important thing to teach them, right? That's like the applied design thinking. And I think that's so fun to teach that stuff because no one teaches it.
0: Yeah, and it's it's always really interesting to me too, though, um, because when I think back on architecture school, for me, it wasn't about learning how to run a business or how to build something. It was about learning how to think outside the box, right? Learning how to design yeah without constraints so that when you got to a place where you had constraints, you could be really creative with it. But I feel like if architecture school is usually a four plus two or a five-year program, like I five years in my fifth year, was I ready for business skills? I feel like, yeah, I, you know, I, I was, I had four years, you know, maybe it's four years of really you know theoretical design and a fifth year of really practical application of that. Yeah. And you're you're meant because when you become an architect, you do your professional degrees, so your five or six years then you're supposed to do three years of internship where you're then supposed to learn how to apply those practical skills. But as you can see in the industry, like there isn't always time for teaching. There isn't always time for it. Like you just kind of get thrown into the thick of things, especially like if you look now in 2020, 2021, where things are busy, people are really building, like you jump into it. You just have to jump in and pick up the work. And it's like okay, well, how many years of internship do you really need to have to get to that point? And, you know, do you ever get to do the business aspects of it? Or are you, you know, really into the design? You have this computer skill, which maybe an older principal doesn't have. So now you're doing a lot of this, this technical skill. So it's, it's fascinating to me. And I, I don't know what the right answer is. Like what, what is the right answer? But I do wish that I had learned some of those things. Because it, it, that's a real interest of mine. People are like, oh, what do you read? I read business books. I find that fascinating. I find that really interesting. Probably super boring to a lot of people. Yeah. I like it.
1: I, I, think, I think for all things we teach, you have to find a way that you can prototype that learning or that, that role within a company for that student. So I think for most people, including some of my students, when you're 20 years old or 21 years old, are you in the right place to learn how to write a business plan? Maybe not, because unless that is, is part of your future and you're, you know, you think it is something you want to do, it's hard to get excited about something that you think is just a school project. So I, I get that. So let, let's step it back a process. Maybe it's not the business management piece. I, I think if you can't run a project profitably and on time, you have no right running a business with multiple projects in a bigger bank role. It's the problems just get they just get bigger. So if, well, why don't we start with not business management, but it's project management. And it's more than just how to build a Gantt schedule. But can you give a, an architectural student a scenario, a real scenario? You are a lead on a project. You have the client could afford 80 hours for schematic, 120 hours for design development. And you've got to track your hours in this course and build a package. then learn how to pitch it, and when changes come through, you learn how to reconcile those and create, uh, you know, adjustments or change orders on that process. Like teach the project managers, add the financial piece. If you can teach them how that works on a, on a small project, because in school all you do is projects, 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 projects. Why don't you, why aren't you ever given a budget? You have, your, your budget is your deadline. This is due in two weeks, but it's up to you to choose how many hours you spend. Why can't in four years you give them a role? you in this case you are the project architect these are the hours these are the deadlines practice writing their client communication right that's all the pieces we can teach and it's how you prototype teaching management and teaching business management but make it make it approachable i think that's the big key here
0: yeah i do too i think it's you know it's cool what what you can teach and how you can teach it and how you can relate that to where they're at now you know versus where they're going to be where they're, where they're going to be at. And I mean, maybe some people know at that age that they want to start their own businesses, but I would say that probably most of them don't. Right. It's like the skill that I'm learning. Do I like this? Do I want to get into this field? Like, do I even have the skills necessary to do it? Do I have the You know, a lot of people say the 80-20 rule is like 80% personality and 20% the skills. You're gonna like, do I have the personality for this field? Like to to handle this. I thought it was funny. I think it was on the first uh on the first. Round that we did uh, for the competition, Christine said, "If I knew I was going to get judged every day for the rest of my life, maybe I would have picked a different field." Right. So, we're used to, you know, you go to architecture school, you're used to submitting a project and getting feedback on the project. So, not not necessarily yeah. criticized, but feedback, right? And that that's the role of architecture and construction is there's, a, we're always gonna be questioning it, how to get better, how to do this differently, what other people's experiences are. And so do I have the personality to take that? I went to Penn State for architecture school. We started with hundred students and I think we graduated 32 or 33. Hmm. So there were people who figured out during that time frame that architecture wasn't for them but it would be really interesting now to go back and talk to all of my classmates and find out how many of us are actually practicing architects. I know there are a couple of us, but even then after the fact, like the field of architecture is so different than architecture school. How many people then continue on into the field of architecture? So I don't know, that personality thing is always fascinating to me.
1: And I think you said it right, though. It's like that, that shows you how, how diverse the opportunities are, let's say, within architecture. My, my guess is of that hundred, more than 30 are in the field of architecture, but maybe not be practicing where they're either licensed or they're a you know, principal at a firm. I have colleagues, again, I went to tool for, for, for interior design, and a lot of my colleagues are not practicing interior design um, they might be in real estate, which helps them with looking at either staging or just home design or understanding their client's needs in physical space, tr- trying to make that transaction work. So it could be quite broad. And in a, in a trade school, back to your point you said earlier, there it's not, it's not the 1980s where you go to school, you learn how to build things only, and only the best and most skilled people will get employed. Because the career paths out of a trade school right now or the demand right now in project coordination and project management eventually, or even just you work in the the estimating department and you're really good at the numbers pieces. Like if you're in, in our program like ours and you're not so great at the shop, maybe I wasn't either, but you kill it at Excel and you really love the numbers and tracking, man, there's a job for you. There is a job for you and it can be very high paying. And if that gives you more satisfaction and feeling like you're not the best person in the shop or the best carpenter, that's okay. There's so many roles out there. If you like building things or being a part of that process,
0: yeah. At least uh, one of my classmates is pretty high up in a very large construction firm, and what she does for them is, you know, totally different, obviously, than architecture. And another one of my classmates is a is the code enforcement officer, right? Two totally unrelated. Uh, fields, but still the basics of architecture led them to those careers. I mean, you're right. It is so diverse and it isn't the 1980s yet uh, anymore, but I think when people think about the construction industry, I feel like that's, that's their thought, right? Like <laughs> how do you get to people and say, there's, there's so much in this industry, so many things that you could do with it. I'm yeah. I don't know. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think you have to highlight people that don't fit the mold of who you think of a traditional, you know, construction worker or carpenter or builder, right? And I think highlighting those people and celebrating their successes, make them visible, is we're able to show how much diversity there is. I mean, our program still is quite, you know, male-dominated, but we do see more diversity in, in our student base and in who's graduating. And there is a big demand out there for very different people. And I think there's, we need to show, you know, be better at how we represent people and how schools advertise and how construction companies show their teams. And the more that you can see yourself on those teams you are like, right, looks like I can fit here because not everyone is a, you know, six foot five white carpenter. Like if you can be more diversified in how you present your team and show a path forward, I think that's how we start to make change.
0: Yeah, it is really interesting how people present themselves, right? Like, so there's one contractor up here, almost 50% of his staff is is women, right? So it's just like and they feel comfortable there and having another woman on the team. Um, but the same, I agree. I think going into high schools and how we present the trades, like way earlier on. Um, like you said, I went to a high school also that had shop classes and agricultural classes. Mm-hmm. Um learned kind of after the fact that I actually went to a pretty good high school because they were teaching those things. Honestly, 20 years later, I don't know if they're still teaching those things, but it's really important. And you you see some where they took all these extracurricular activities out of schools, you know, where there's no longer music programs or there's no longer shop programs or whatever. It's like is this part of the reason why we don't have anybody in the trade industry where we're struggling saying like, hey, because everybody had to take it in seventh grade and you might've caught somebody who was like, Hey, actually this is kind of cool. I, I sort of like this. If we're not teaching it at all, like (laughs) if that's not in seventh grade anymore and everyone doesn't have to take it. So are we losing access to, to people who wouldn't have considered it before, but had to take it and was like, man, that box I built in shop class was really cool. I enjoyed that hands-on whatever.
1: The, the, the hard facts with teaching design and teaching studio-based programs like architecture or interior design, and then the, the complement, which is like the building trades, is they're very expensive programs to run. If you look purely at a school, which I've learned to do since I've become a full-time uh, professor, is I think learning, even if you're in a company, learning the business of how your company works is really important to know whether you're well-paid or not how profitable is the company? Should, should I grow within them? So learning about how a school works is also you know, quite fascinating. Schools are, they're, they're businesses. Their revenue is, is partially tuition and partially you know, government uh, subsidy, um, colleges or universities. Um, and if you look at a trade program or an artsy pro, artsy program, we are space hogs. We take up we need shops with stationer equipment, we need areas for building, we need areas for forklifts and material staging. So if you look at how many students can be put into a lecture-based environment teaching a skill or some knowledge base a software-based, you know that classroom can be filled by 30 students from eight in the morning all the way through until eight o'clock at night. It can roll over about six times or how many classes can run through that and that classroom can teach um, entry-level medicine and probably art history. And then it flips to um, chemistry, engineering 101, right? Or the computer lab teaches rev in the morning, then some kind of 3D modeling for jewelry. That shop is, or that studio space can be very um, very flexible. A shop environment for, for a trade school, we require, our, our trade program has 350 active students. We have about 10,000 square feet over two floors of our, our building. we the biggest shop in the school takes a lot of room to run these classes. You can't have big groups of students based on the working space. If you're teaching them how to frame a house inside a building, that requires a massive footprint. And at the end of the class, you don't just put it away on a shelf or turn the computer off and refresh it with Revit. That frame structure is in the space until that student comes back later that week or the next week to resume their learning. So it takes a lot of space and as a result, Programs like ours can be less profitable than other, st- other, other you know, if you look at revenue per square foot, a flexible classroom that can run six classes back-to-back for different programs is could be a better choice for a school than maintaining a massive architecture program where everyone needs a dedicated drafting desk, plus a desk now with their computer, plus an area to store their models, plus a shop downstairs to make physical models, 3D print, Then they did an area for the five by 10 laser cutter and they need a shop tech to teach that thing versus just saying, you know what? No, we'll let another school do that. There's not enough subsidies in this area. There's no, what builders walking into the school and saying, I wanna give you a hundred million dollars to help teach residential students in renovation, how to air seal joist headers on a retrofit. Nobody, right? But other programs, if you tap into an industry like a chemical company or pharma or pharmaceutical or engineering, there's bigger opportunities there. So I think it's difficult for trade schools when schools have budget crunches to keep these massive shop environments where again, the liability is huge. In a, in a lecture space, there's no threat of you cutting your finger off. That is a threat in every single one of our classrooms. Right? It, it's kind of a joke, but it's not because then we as a school... The way to work around that is we teach traditional saws, and then we also then go and buy, you know, 15, $20,000 saw stop machines. Those are very expensive machines. And if you want every student to have access to them, you need a lot of them. So our programs are also needed, but I think you can start to see, if you look at it from the business case of why it could be hard for a school that's being squeezed, or you see room in other STEM areas, you know, in engineering and math and sciences that, Flexible classrooms, and you know, right now with virtual learning, it's very challenging to teach hands-on carpentry and framing 101 virtually. AKA, you can't, right? You ship materials to the house with a tape and like a. No one has this. Not, not every of my students have a, like a, a skill at home and a framing square of their own. Like that's at the shop.
0: Well, you just said they were going to cut their fingers off when they were in class. So could you imagine shipping them a pile of tools and being like, I'm going to virtually watch you do this and hope that right. like, that goes okay. No. Right. God, so like,
1: this is the push, right? Like if you are a school, and I say this completely supportive of schools that we work in, is you've got to think about in the future, if you, if you do have any kind of budget restrictions, how, how would you either increase your revenue as a business? That's more students. Um, so would you look at, classroom-based activities, or also just the flexibility of maintaining some programs that have some virtual learning in the future. And I think that's probably easier for other programs. It's harder to do for applied design courses, harder to do for applied, um, like industrial design and making classes, and especially for skilled trades. There's there's only so much you can gleam through. Larry Hahn is, is an amazing man and a dream in my world, but watching his videos gets me excited, but it doesn't teach someone what it feels like to cut something and put it together and learn um, by actually doing it. And our program needs a physical space. It needs big spaces and more schools need, you know, programs like, like ours to fill this need. I think it's huge.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's huge. It's a huge need that we have. I mean, as we looked at the the past year that we've had, construction has just continued on it's something that's happening a ton in in our in our country right and every contractor that i talk to is like we need help we need help we need help right and so it's like there's this gap between um you know skilled people and obviously, as you just mentioned, it's a business and it's an expensive one to run your department, right? And so as schools and everybody else is trying to cut costs, everyone's trying to cut costs everywhere. It's like, that's going to get cut because it's too expensive. It takes up too much space. It's too much, but it's still a, you know, a, a first need, right? A, a constant need. It's, it's,
1: it is like- massively, massively important, right? Yeah. And it's just figuring out, you know, it's us as schools and industry, like how do we show the business case of what this looks like? How do we be more clear about what salaries look like for these kind of students to make sure that we we always have enough students applying to programs like ours? Right. You know, right now we're very we have very healthy intakes, but you know, in, a, in a, a couple of years from now, maybe that that de- decreases, even though it's massive industry need, you need to communicate to that student who is 15, 16 and thinking about applying to their college or their university. That's the age we're going to have to target. And 15-year-olds are probably not following certain people we follow on IG or reading JLC or reading Fine Hill Building. Shame on them. But if they're not doing that and the guidance counselors in schools don't know about how, how much of a fit this could be for their students and to know what the salaries could look like, or you know, that's, that's where the focus has to be shifted to, to make sure programs always have really healthy numbers and can even grow. You could grow these programs.
0: Yeah. I agree and it has to be early on and it also has to feel a little bit in the construction industry. Not all jobs have raised at the same level, right? So you you see plumbers and electricians who go to a trade school or whatever, that's a licensed profession. They're they're their job numbers are getting, you know, or their, their salary numbers are are doing well. And then you just still at the same time, you see some other people in, you know, rough carpentry where maybe that number hasn't risen. And it's like, well, Maybe the, uh, our industry as a whole needs to raise that number, which I know construction cost is already too expensive for, for people, right? So it's like, how do you justify doing this? But in order to get more people in here, they, they have to get paid for the work that they're gonna do too. It's it's, it's a catch 22, it's so hard, right? What's it the is, right answer? It's
1: hard and kind of unfair. Like if you right? consider, like think about, like just picture a really skilled carpenter in your head. Just Just pick that person. And think about how much, especially in residential or renovation, how much they would need to know to be an effective member on that team. They need to know what it is like to work with the foundation trade to square the foundation so they can set that sill plate, you know, plumb and square. When they're framing that wall, those walls, they have to be aware of now the, the the envelope details for air sealing, and then later for managing all that continuous insulation, which then also means. They'd have to know about different window installation details to get the drainage plane working correctly for where that window sits. They then have to know how to work with their trades on in the interior for all the rough-ins and back framing, and then air sealing again for all those penetrations. And it keeps going through every level. That's how you build an effective renovation carpenter or you know, a general contracting carpenter. Look at all the skills they need to learn. They need to know the complement of about 50 trades. That person should be very well compensated and yet they might not always be. And I think it's something that we have to consider. Um, yes, products are already expensive, but we need to think about how we encourage people to look at this as a career track, but also work on the training aspect. Trade schools can only teach so much in a two-year program. Apprenticeship programs can only teach so much in you know, those three school terms. It comes down to really fostering on-site learning and mentorship programs within your own employees, so it's not just you know by um, by Moses, right? They might pick it up by that non-communicative expert, like that. That's it's all on us as a collective group to make to make that happen.
0: I couldn't agree more. And that's part of the reason why I do the podcast. Part of the reason why I have a diverse group of people who come on and talk about it. People who just graduated from school, people who are teaching students, people who are contractors in the field, who are talking about it, architects, women, men, whoever wants to come on and just highlight, like, this is a complicated thing. And, you know, I, I probably sometimes have the unpopular opinion that we don't We don't tell people often enough how complicated it is. So yes, it's an accessible field, which is great. We want it to be that way. We want people to feel like they can build their own homes. But at the same time, we want you to understand that it's all a system. It's part of a much bigger system and every single piece and part of it has some relation to something else, you know, whether it's like you said, the person who's trained, trained to understand 50 other skills on the job site, or whether it's changing out one installation for another, they all have impacts on other things and how well the job goes and how complicated and how smoothly and how much it costs. And for me, it's complicated. And I've been doing this for a while and I still think it's complicated every time. Right. So it's, Letting people know that it's complicated, but it's also exciting and interesting. It's like ah, what's the?
1: I think it just shows them how how many opportunities there are. Like if you, like I think right now the thing that you know we as an education industry can can grow towards and you know and embrace is really this idea of high performance detailing and training to make sure each student in in, in every sector really. So whether that's you know um, plumbing and HVAC and mechanicals and also in, in carpentry. Is how all the systems and layers of a building really fully work. So if you are taking you know first semester framing, it's not just you know framing on 16s and and how to crown, crown your studs and lay things out and, and cut a stringer, but also when you're framing that wall, can you also learn the applied control layers that go on at that stage? Can you think about those connection details between the seal plate and your foundation through a fluid-applied membrane or, or through a tape? Because if we can start to teach those aspects like that, I think will be an emerging trade in the future is really those like envelope detailers and performance trades, and even just penetration trades who help get to these air selling goals. That, that's something that a school can start to teach because the builders that I talk to, that's what they're looking for. They have carpenters with 20 years of experience who can frame like crazy. They've got really good numbers. They like how they, they cope in case but they're looking for someone who has experience with those areas they're not so aware of like the applied building science and those, those are massive sectors of our economy that we can stimulate and that's a different kind of tradesperson that isn't i need to be able to put 3 you know 3 bundles of shingles over my shoulder and carry them up on a ladder i don't need to be the biggest strongest person some of the best envelope details i know have really tiny hands they can fit the roll of tape on their wrist so they can be nimble They can use a pair of surgeon scissors and they can detail windows like crazy. That person should be paid a ton of money. We should be teaching thousands of people how to do this and and filling that need in different ways, right? Supporting different kinds of learners, different physically able people to to fill fill the gap.
0: Well, and how cool would that person be in a supply house, right? You walk in. Right, cause this is a conversation um, that Mike and I had or have had for our local BS and beer before we started doing BS and beer online is when you walk into your lumber company or wherever you buy your supplies from, and you're like, well, what, what WRB do I need? And the answer is it depends, but they might just sell you what they have on the shelf. Cause like, Hey, this is what this product does. And we're going to sell it. Like, Products are changing so quickly to even just keep up with what products are available and what you need. Like if you had somebody on staff at the lumber company that understood all these details had done the research on the products that came in and you came in, you were like, I need a WRB. And they were like, okay, what's your wall system. And you describe what's in your wall system. And they're like, you need this one. Like how valuable would that experience be? Like, Maybe you're not the guy that actually puts it on or is in the field or can can yeah. do some of that thing but but you're you're the the handy trade at the at the trade showroom who answers those questions. I mean that person should get paid millions of dollars, right? <laughs> like that person should yeah. get paid to answer those questions like what do you need? How are you doing this? How is it related? Here's what you need.
1: It's really increasing like the, the equity to smart people, right? Around that building science piece. So you know, if you, if you happen to have a client who has the budget to invest in, you know, certain Swiss membranes, the people at the company are fantastic with training. They will answer your questions. Again, companies at like 475 will help you with modeling. They have excellent details. But, but that, the, the knowledge of those suppliers or how to work with them is, is not in every builder's repertoire, nor is it in their client's budget at this moment. And the need for that to be at all levels where you order materials and look to those people as experts um, is, is critical, but shows you maybe you're as well, you're really smart at applying the knowledge of the material itself. Maybe you're not the most skilled at installing it yourself. So it is, again, a career path for a person who understands the science behind these memories or control layers. They understand the, the financial of how to sell it to the builder, to sell it to their client, but they don't need to be able to install 2,000 feet of a WB on a ladder to to have a successful career like there's so much need all different aspects of construction that whatever your skill is there is a role for you if you're excited about building
0: i couldn't have said that better right (laughs) if you're excited about building there's a role for you here and so many different ways of building like you said you went to an interior design school and you know and you're you're teaching construction trades now i mean there's the circle of how you got to where you went or what you did or you know I, this is a joke that I say about architects like we're we're really good with colors black white and gray those are the colors we like <laughs> you know but some of the i love colors some of the best spaces are bright and beautiful and colorful and I'm like I don't have that skill I need to rely on somebody else to tell me what colors go together and make this come yeah you know, I don't know it's just it's it's such a diverse field. Yeah.
1: I, I learned early on I, so I went to interior design because my I thought architecture that, that was the goal but I wasn't so applied in high school my math marks were okay and that doesn't fly for architecture doesn't fly for engineering so I mean luckily though I got into a really strong interior design program in Toronto. Um, it was kind of split between teaching architectural. Uh, practices of proportion and, and study, but also interior and rounded out with industrial design. So we have a fully functional uh, furniture shop for building full scale models and, and drawing. But where I struggled with, because I was a son of a builder, is my, what you were saying earlier, design school is a place where you push yourself and do a lot of constraints. So you can be the most creative person before you get the reality slammed in your face. Because I was a son of a builder and worked on projects since I was about 12, my projects were probably the least imaginative of the group because if I was given a bathroom project to you know, create a bathroom, I, I didn't design the most luxurious spaces because I was more concerned about detailing how the curdy went together. So I had details of the shower and the drainage, but the tile on top, I couldn't really care for because that wasn't what I was fulfilled by. But I got to learn how to detail how to draw. And then when I came out of that, I worked in architecture, worked in landscape, in landscape design. And I never thought I'd work back in renovation, but it's what I came back to. And then I never thought, I never thought people taught what I was doing on a daily basis, running projects and helping with company operations and teaching staff. I thought trade schools only taught carpentry and not this idea of small business management and project management. You know, that isn't a commercial focus, but it is very much residential focused. And I think even for me, I worked in the industry and didn't know this career existed. I didn't know you could teach full-time or part-time in renovation project management. But our industry, and at least Canada, the renovation industry is bigger than all new construction for residential. Bigger. And I didn't know.
0: I think that's the biggest stick right now is how do we... Gain access to things we don't know exist. Um, I had uh, a gentleman on, I think it was a few months ago, might have been last year, um, who said, I didn't know architecture school was even a thing until an architect came into our high school and was like, these are all the cool things that I do. And he was like, that's it. That's for me. I'm going to go to architecture school. But until that point, it wasn't even a career he had heard of, thought of, knew about. Right. So I think there's like, and, and at 18, I mean, what what do you it's only maybe what your guidance counselors know or what you know maybe the fact that two of steve basic's children have gone to architecture school is because their dad's an architect right so it was the career path they knew about and it's interesting to me like how do we gain access to what's out there like what fields are out there you know because you also look at other people who or maybe miserable doing what they're doing. And maybe they would be great at something else, but they just don't know it exists. Like, is that even think, available?
1: <laughs> you just described like, how do we connect with youth? And like, right? as we get older, it gets, it gets harder. But I think we have to recognize that we're not really good at it. Right? If we're saying right now that building the street is growing beyond belief. I have companies that I have relationships with call me on a weekly basis for talent. And we don't have enough to meet those needs. And it is about getting to a student and to a family early in that student's career to let them know about that about that potential. Like I had a, I had a, I had a moment in high school, I think it was grade 11, and our, our teacher was trying to teach us about um, uh, what it is to be a, a consumer. So they had everyone raise their hand if you're a consumer and no one knew what that meant. So they said, okay, let's reverse it. Who in here? Who out of the group of thirty of you? Who here makes something that that that, that you sell? And no one raised a hand because we're all like you know fourteen. Said okay, let's look at your parents. How many of your parents make something? And it was me and someone else. My my dad was a builder, and he he also ran with some other partners a canoe manufacturer, so they made physical products and they sold them. And another person had a, f- a family in farming, but everyone else really had, was in the service industry and they're consumers. If you go backwards, maybe 50 years, that ratio is probably higher, but I bet you, if you went back to the same class right now and asked how many of your parents are in the, the world of building physical things, whether they're physical products or spaces, it's very little. So if you've removed for a lot of young students, their exposure to building things physically, their only exposure is driving down the street and seeing a construction site, but it's covered in fencing and it's not really approachable, how do you understand what that's like? And I think that's same for architecture, right? Unless you know that dad who drives a sob with plans rattling around the back seat, like you don't know that's a thing, right? Not right. that all architects drive sobs, but most do. And I think it's it's exposure. So maybe it is, you know, it's going to high schools and doing these these kind of sessions. Is it going to getting schools to participate in you know Skills USA or Skills Canada? To teach the building practice is it having open job job sites where you do i don't know if you do this in school but you do like a ride along with your parents you go to their job but can a builder volunteer to take every student from that school through a site and show them what it's like you know
0: yeah or think, volunteer to take you know if you have a builder who could volunteer to take you know a handful of students to a habitat for humanity house or something like that where they get to go for one day, right. They come with their builder, right. Cause you can't, you can't rely on the other volunteers for that. But like you take a builder and you go to a, go to a project and you say like, okay, the two of us are going to work together one-on-one and we're going to, we're going to build something today. We're going to do something today. You know, is there, um, or, or there, you know, my, my niece, um, decided that she wanted to apply to the, the trade school that's affiliated with our high school to take, Architectural, I think it's architecture, engineering, and something, uh design class, right, through the high school as part of their trade program. But I think that's specifically because she knows me, right? She sees what I do and she thinks that's cool. And she's been telling me for a number of years I'm gonna come work for you in the future, auntie. Like it's I'm like, yeah, you're young, you know, we'll see. But she's kind of stuck with it. And so she was like, Hey, I'm gonna apply to this trade school. I'm like, great, go for it. Like So, so yeah, so I don't know how we, we get more, I don't know, how do we get more involved in those and right. And then we're all busy. So it's like, we, we need to not be too busy to not do these things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, it's hard. There's no easy solution. And I think it, you know, it it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be massive and systemic initially. You know, it can be something very small. You choose to give exposure to every summer you choose, even though it's not profitable you hire a high school student and you just give them an opportunity to try it. It's like give them an opportunity to prototype what it's like to work in construction. Right. Even if that is cleaning brick and being on a site.
0: Right. Even if you Next. just sweep the job site, right? You're super are Gaining knowledge. You're, you're absorbing things.
1: That's it. And it's, it's always a loss leader for you because that $50 an hour could go to support a young apprentice instead. So it is a conscious decision to invest in just people giving them exposure. Um, But start small. Maybe it's only a month of summer. You hire someone who's completely unskilled. Just give them a chance. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, I think it's starting small and giving someone a chance to prototype what that career is like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: before they choose what college to go to. Right.
0: Because that's it. I mean, what do you really know at 18? It's sort of this funny, it's funny thing. Like um, when you decide to be an architect at 18 and you stick with it, it's, it's kind of this joke that we say you sign away your life at 18, right? Because it's five years of school. It's at least three years of internship before you can even sit for your licensure. And then like at that point, you're 10 years in. So you're like, well, I can't do something else now. I've just invested 10 years of time to get to this point. So I have to be this this person's like, if I knew that at 18, would I have done it? I, I don't know. Yes, maybe still, oh, like, I, and I joke because everyone's like, oh, you're an architect. And everyone has that story. Like, oh, I was gonna go to architecture school, but I didn't, right? So there's this weird thing about architects that I don't quite understand. You don't work 40 hours a week, even if you work for somebody else. You work a ton of hours you have to really like it. Otherwise it is not worth it. It's too risky. It's too much, you know, too much liability. It's too many hours and you don't get paid what you think, what people think you get paid. Right. And I'm like, my dad could have encouraged me to go to a trade school, become an electrician, start my own electrical company. I'd be making way more money now than, than I was. I don't know if I would be fulfilled the way that I am as an architect and the building science piece of it, because it takes both my love of art and my love of science and combines them together. So it certainly was a better choice for me. If I was given that opportunity and told, you won't come out of school with you know, twenty years ago, twenty five thousand dollars worth of debt. Now it's like fifty or hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. You won't come out of school with debt that you're going to pay off for the next twenty years of your life, and you know, making who knows what. In the, you know, if you don't start your own business, you know, you maxing out at a certain level, or you know, would that be the right would would that be the financial decision that you would make? I don't know. It's just we're we're so pro college which is right for some people and not right for other people. Should everybody go to school at 18 or should you go and do something for like five years and then choose what you want to go to school for? Cause maybe you're more like, I don't know. I don't have the answers. Maybe 18 is the year. Maybe you got to keep going with the school thing.
1: I don't think there's, you know, you're right. There's no right answer. And right? it's how you make a decision. Well, usually it's not you. It's your parents who are filtering what you've been good at the rest of your life. Your life today, and they help you make a decision. But unless I think you said it earlier, unless you know someone who is in architecture or design or building, you might not know it's really a career for you or for your your son, son daughter, or you know, or person, right? Um, and then I think Sean Van Dyck wrote an article in JLC a few years ago around that that sort of that that stream of going to a four-year college or university for some kind of um, arts undergrad, and what that costs and what you come out at versus maybe a a two-year applied uh, diploma at a college and what that costs and what you start out when you come out at. But when you start two years ahead of your colleagues in that four-year program, and what he will say in that article is that the average student takes five years to finish a four-year program, so really you start at a college diploma three years ahead uh, making a salary or making an hourly, uh, hourly wage, uh, what that translates to over a career. And I think for parents to understand that trade schools are not just places you go if, you're, if your child is not that applied in math. It's not just a place where you go if they've kind of struggled academically. They might be like me, I did quite well in academics at school, but I didn't like them. I love shop, I love art, and I love those courses way more. So, I was pushed to more academic. But if you had a student who struggled in school, it might just be because they don't give us sh- SHIT about algebra and, you know, in well, physics.
0: It's the same. I didn't think I liked math in school until I took structures and I was like, "Oh, calculus makes so much more sense now." Like, yeah. oh, I applied it to something that I found interesting and that, you know, like like you said it, yeah. maybe they struggled in school because they like to do hands on things you don't know how to
1: apply it right
0: school, school and standardized testing isn't i don't know it's not really like a metric of intelligence right because people are so different like you might be way smarter and way better at math if you could just do it with something that you physically applied to something else. If it's, I mean, if it's
1: if it's not relevant to you in the moment, it's very hard to apply yourself unless you are just intrinsically driven to please others, I think, or push yourself.
0: Course, there are some people who are like brilliant mathematicians because they just like to do all of the yep. stuff with math and those numbers, yep. maybe those numbers mean something to them, I don't know. But there's there's this other avenue that they're using. And and there are those people too, and they're brilliant and they're wonderful. And they have their own place in the workforce and the market and, and, and everything, you know, it, it wasn't something that I loved. So I didn't go to school for engineering. I didn't want to do a lot of math. And I, at Penn state, we had to take our structures classes and we had to be able to pass them. But for our gen eds, we had to be able, you had to take math of some sort, but you could take the history of math. You could literally learn about the history of math without doing any math. I, on the other hand, was not very smart and thought, I'm going to take algebra. I took that in seventh grade. Right. Like, it should be super easy. Well, when you haven't used algebra since seventh grade, it's like, what is this nonsense that I have to do? What does this apply to? I'm taking structures classes with calculus, which makes total sense. And I'm like, yep. why? why can I not remember how to do algebra? Like, what is this? thing that i have to do so
1: you know where to apply it right like you know like in our, our first year program we teach construction math so in high school you you'd would have learned you know uh, formulas around triangles and calculating where the where the what the, the focal point on a parabola is all these things i think are so not applied at least for a 10 for a great 10 student and then you go to school and you learn how to lay out a stringer you learn how to apply like rise run theory you learn how to apply all of these different things for, for cutting rafters. If you could take some part of that, which is the math based and applying it to a structure and pull that into something to make that student in grade nine or 10, see what that's like. Like can shop class be like a hybrid between math and making the thing? Like can you build a set of stairs? You can't build a set of stairs without understanding math. You can't. Like right. the the skill, the, the craft in building a set of construction stairs and cutting a stringers is, is I think quite accessible for most people. You need two tools, and a square. That's it. If you could teach them how to do that, I think it shows them like, holy crap, I can make stuff. And I might not understand the algebra that Emily kills it at, but I can build a set of stairs, and that that empowers me as a young learner.
0: That's always um, in in when I was teaching. Um... The energy auditing to the construction students. Um, we always had to start like we start any of those energy classes with just some some basic simple math, right? Because you got to be able to take this set of plans maybe and figure out what the what the roof slope is to yes. figure out what you have, right? And so it's like, okay, we're gonna today I'm gonna teach you about the area of a triangle. And they're all like rolling their eyes, like area of a triangle, like really. And I'm like, it's gonna apply to something you're gonna do with it, it'll be totally fine. And then once you get done, they're like, oh yeah, that was actually, that wasn't so bad. But like at first it's just, you're teaching us math. Like what, what is this? And I'm like, oh no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be cool. So I know you haven't done this since like fifth grade, but (laughs) like.
1: (laughs) No. And like, and like how, if you, if you get off on learning, like how nerdy some of these pieces can be, like for you to be an estimator later, yes, you didn't know how to do an area. But in your case, for your slope thing, the plans are an orthographic projection of the building. They don't take into account the actual real area of that slope assembly. Right. So you get to teach what like roof factors are, right, for adding to that, that orthographic area. And that for most people initially blows their mind that you can look at a roof and say, oh, that's 726 square feet. That's 30 sheets of plywood. Like, how, but I only get 420. I'm like, well, it's because it's a 912 here. 12, 12 from the dormers. Like, how do you know that? Well, the arrow in the 12, that tells me the pitch. That number is the percentage of the slope. And I've got this little cheat sheet here. And like, like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Now I can yeah. but it's actually applied to something they can that they do. I think yeah. it's if it shows you how yeah, if you're not the most skilled hands-on, you can still be in construction if you have a brain for the math. You can't be a really skilled carpenter, unless you understand and can harness math. You really can't.
0: Well, and how many great construction companies would be even greater if they had an estimator in the office doing that stuff, right? Because it's say you're you you're just starting out and you're you're wearing all of the hats and you have to do your calculations at night after you've gotten home from being on the job site all day long and you're tired, right? Like that one mistake you make is gonna cost you however many. Like yeah. there's a definite skill for that person in the office doing those things. So
1: Yeah. And for that student who has been through, you know, even a month of framing, I really still think you can't really estimate successfully unless you're in maybe a commercial practice where they have really formal systems and strategies and sheets and a mentor over you. To work in residential on that level, it's difficult. You're probably the only estimator in that company. And to estimate successfully, you typically need a very deep building background to know what to look for. You know, I've never seen your sets of plans and imagining their detail quite well. You have full assembly schedules without those, you have to use your experience to know what's not there to account for it. So even again, you're not the most hands-on and production-based carpenter. You can be a more successful estimator because you know how things go together.
0: That's Also a great reference for architects is you could be a great architect, but if you don't ever go to the job site and see how things are put together or get feedback from your builders of how it went together or what parts were missing in your drawings, you'll never be as good of an architect either. I think, you know, having that hands-on skill, the experience and visiting your job sites and talking to them, like what went well, what didn't go well, what could we have done differently, right? Like I'm not going to be the fastest person out there installing a window but I still need to go out and see how they installed the window. Right. And see what went well and how did this go? Or, you know, I always love all the new tapes and stuff, right. It's always fun to hear like that tape was so sticky and it like, it was so hard to put on. Those are, that's great feedback and you don't know unless you are immersed in that. So estimating that totally makes sense. If you haven't built that, you don't know what's not there. I think then, that's,
1: yeah, I think that's really all, it's really kind of all trades is, I forget who said this or where I read this, but a, a kind of a, a philosophy this person had is to, if you want to be a successful trade and respect the trade before you and set up for success, the trade after you, is what if you go for a couple of weeks or a month and go work with the trade before you to understand why you're fr- so frustrated with the the foundation company, why things are at plumbing level, was it easier for them to work in that muddy hole with no support doing it? Maybe pretty hard. Can you build some humility for that person? Or can you offer them some ideas that would help you and show them the importance of why that, that critical step matters to you? And later, if, you, if you've if you never boarded your own projects and you're doing backframing, should you learn about why it's crucial about flatness in certain areas to, to handle? You might just learn that importance. And I think the same thing goes for... The thing that's probably too big for this podcast and this show is to talk about how you get architects to work and builders to work more collaboratively together. And I think that breakdown in, in often respect probably comes to our understanding of our mutual professions. And if we can have a builder working in an office and see how much thought and meetings and communication and decision-making goes into that drawing package. So I know how critical it was for me to make that change and not inform you about why I didn't spec that one tape or one material. I don't probably understand that you probably spent a lot of time going to a training seminar. understanding that tape, that tape is part of two control layers It's doing all these things. I understand when I make that change because I, I don't think I fully understand how much work it took you to make that package or it reflected all that clients months of decisions. And likewise to detail a window detail, that you've never fully put together to understand the hours you're requesting that builder to do and maybe highlight, You know, I know you've never done this kind of install before. You might wanna look at how many hours you're carrying for estimation because this is quite involved. Let me walk you through how it could could work. And you know what, on the day that you do it, let's work together so I can learn from how to detail it maybe more simply. And then you can also learn then in the future, how long it takes you to install so that you can estimate correctly in the future. Like that kind of relationship Can happen. It's where builders move into the design side. I have colleagues who have left commercial or or, sorry, residential renovation, and now now draw full time, or they run a design practice. And I have design colleagues who now build full time because they they're more fulfilled in that way because they love going to the site. They love leaving the office. They're always on site at meetings. Like, why don't I just run my own projects? Because I get a lot out of this. I'll design less, but I'll be able to build the complete process. And I think at that point, they get a lot of respect for the person who comes before them, the person that comes after them.
0: Yeah. I think respect is really the the key figure to that is like there, it doesn't need to be an adversarial relationship at all. And if everybody on the team is together, even if you have to make a decision to change something in the field, because of whatever reason if everybody talks about it, it's not so-and-so throwing somebody else under the bus or or whatever and that we've all determined ahead of time what, what's most important, right? So if we're value engineering because it's too expensive, what can we take out that doesn't reduce the durability or the efficiency or whatever of a structure and how do we yeah. convey that to our client as a team so that we have this team approach? But it's the same. I... I stopped doing bid work. I don't think bid work really ever gets anybody a great project. And I bring my contractors on during design and say, okay, what, what have you done? What do you know how to do? How can I make this as simple as possible and still meet all the metrics that we want to do? Because everybody, I mean, I have one builder that only ever uses board sheathing. He does not use plywood, which is kind of rare. But I was like, this is great. Like, this is absolutely awesome. I'm not going to detail it with plywood. This client actually needs a, you know, as for us to reduce as much petroleum as possible. So like, this is the best possible scenario, but that was something that they did different. And then I was like, "But we're gonna build double stud walls, and we're gonna put in an ERV, and we're gonna do all these things." And he's like, "Okay, I've never done that before. I'm gonna call you with questions." I was like, "The only thing that you can do wrong is not call me when you have a question. Is it everything else? Is like we'll walk through it, we'll talk about it, we'll we'll do all of this stuff, we'll work with it." And he's like, "Okay, great." And he called me every time he had a question, and that client is so happy. Like it's. Because we all worked as a team, yep. and th- they were happy, the builders happy, I'm happy. Like, I mean, that's a, That's a successful project.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, like, okay. So let's take that to the education piece. So if if you drink like the IPD, the Integrated Project Delivery Kool Aid, we all value and see the benefit in that integrated delivery process, where you bring on a builder, or the builder brings on an architectural. Uh, partner so that again, yeah, the project has three champions, right? Someone championing like the spatial program and the f- homes form, and then the builder probably buildability and durability and maybe cost, right? It's versus one person. If we all know that is a one successful way to work, can we be- bring that to a school? I'm not sure what your experience was like, but most schools are very siloed. When you go to school for interior design, even though we spend four years teaching students, or at least at that point in my career, being taught how to detail drawings to communicate to someone, how often did the builder come in and were they a part of your design crit? So the, your design crit was there around the, probably the form and the function and maybe how you address the client's program. But did you have that person to say, well, okay, that's cool, but your buildability sucks. Look at this detail. How do you get that balance to hang from that like where does that blind retract into on that, on that curtain wall? It's not there. I think to, to miss that, we, we start to lay the seed early that at certain design education centers, all the design comes first, then you engage the builder when all your stuff's figured out. And on the trade school side, can you teach trade schools about what the design process looks like so they know how to really speak the language and understand the thought process that goes into a set of drawings from your hand at the set of drawings and go, what the heck? That is stupid. Right. Why yeah. did they do that?
0: The school like, can, that? Yeah. Yeah. The school that I teach uh, at has both a construction department and a uh, design department. And I've often said that for a while, they offered a certificate program as part of it um, as, as the trade in um sustainable design or something. I don't even remember what it's called, but essentially you had to take four, uh, four classes. That could be part of your electives. One was energy auditing and my sustainable design class. And then there was like a print reading and something else. But I often thought like those two departments should then get together and, and build it, right? They should have the, the construction students join the design students, the design students join the construction students, and they should they should yeah. come up with a thing and they should build it. And then they should then talk to the mechanical students about, you know, where the mechanicals are like, I always thought it would be super cool if there's like, but obviously, like you said earlier, expense, right? Like how do you get people to donate materials yeah. to make that happen? Or like if so you have to buy all the materials, that's going to be incredibly expensive, but it seemed like that would be the best like connection to, to tie them all together.
1: I think sometimes we get stuck at, well, that's the best way to do it. So until we get there, let's do nothing. Right. And I think the hard thing is like, how do you fake that? If you're, if the objective is trying to get designers and builders to um, collaborate and work together early in their career. Yes. The dream is they design something, build it together. They're, project management uh, program manages it, all the trade programs work with them. That's this dream, dream state. But if the goal is interaction, can we start really small? In my next crit, I'm going to invite in, let's say it's commercial, ICI construction, you're teaching and design. I'm gonna invite in an ICI project manager or builder in addition to the two architects I had planned, planned to do. And likewise for us at the trade school, which, um, we, we try and do more of is you know, if we're teaching a building, we're teaching laneway home construction right now, different assemblies because of their, um, their, their fire code and, and setbacks. But we have builders come to talk about the buildability and just site access. We're trying to bring in architects who also work on those kind of projects to offer their feedback just to learn what that dialogue can look like early. And that is a smaller interaction. That's inviting one different person so you can hear a different perspective grow that then to do that hybrid design project then maybe it's a full build project but how do we start really small yeah. or can, can your program hire I happen to have the opportunity to still teach at the school of interior design at Ryerson I teach a couple of courses in technology and I really value that because I, I, I don't practice interior design anymore but what I can really champion and help students and design understand is the technology aspect of building So I think it's really quite powerful to have someone like myself with a building background, teaching technology to design students. And likewise, at our school, we teach our third year group, we teach them Revit and we teach them SketchUp so that they understand the software from an architect's perspective, they learn from an architectural prof on how to use the tools that you will then, your colleagues in the field will use. It builds that kind of respect of like, wow, Emily, That drawing package is amazing. And I know how much work that must take because Mm -hmm. I can barely draw a shed. But the way you drew that window flashy detail is like super exciting, but they know how hard it is. Yeah. I think if we can do that early, it's, uh, I think it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think that would be, That would be great. When I was in school, we did a topical Tuesdays lecture series, and we brought in other departments from Penn State to talk to the architecture department so they could just realize that architecture is related to so many other fields. But like you're saying, with the practical knowledge, that just makes so much sense. Is it a builder this week? I think that's part of the reason um, with co-teaching why my co-teacher who's the chair of the architecture department likes teaching with me because I'm in the field so she can teach them how to draw she can teach them the building science basics and then I come in and I apply it to well, yeah. this is what we do here in the field and how we do it and how this detail goes together because we're doing it over and over again so um. I
1: think. I think in general, the past year, I've certainly, and some of my colleagues who to talked with, become more aware of the representation of either guest speakers or guest critiques, or even who the college hires and looking at, you know, initially I was trying to get, if I looked at who I was probably bringing as guest speakers four years ago, it's everyone I worked with who happened to be a white man. And I was, I didn't really recognize the bias I had for who I was inviting, because who, who I'd work with. And I had to think like, okay, right, no, I do know this person, that person who represents a different community. And I think we're getting better at that to a certain extent, we're not clearly there at all. But I think we also look at the representation of the industry. We expect a student of design to go immediately on product graduation, to work with a builder on your first project, work with the interior designer on that interior, work with a client, learn how to communicate. We've got to give them those tools and just teach them that perspective at an early, early, early point.
0: Yeah, I agree. And on that note, I think we have to call it a day. Um, I know you've got something coming up at three o'clock. I got another thing coming up at three o'clock. It was great to talk to you. I'd love to have you back on again. If you figure out the key to making all of this happen, just let us know. <laughs> I, feel I will like, do that.
1: I will I, like, I will you know, shout in it.
0: Canada, you're, you're getting it quicker than we are. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we figured it out I think the whole thing is sharing yeah. it's sharing and the best thing about the best thing about COVID right now is you know I probably never would have met you before because we weren't doing this
0: we weren't doing you know, this I think,
1: to open things up like I have in fact meeting Ben Bogey through this Sweet 16 Wall Assembly competition he's joining a class next week as a virtual guest speaker that would have never happened before and I think it shows you that we can share together just got to reach out and sometimes just ask for help
0: Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out, emily at Mottram, You can find me on Instagram, mottramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram, And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy.